They wrote the End of Life Handbook together. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me are Dr. David Feldman and Dr. Andrew Lasher, authors of their new book, The End of Life Handbook, a compassionate guide to connecting with and caring for a dying loved one. Dr. Feldman is Assistant Professor of Counseling Psychology at Santa Clara University. Dr. Lasher is the Director of Palliative Medicine at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. Dr. Feldman, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks so much for having us. Dr. Lasher, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's get into the wonderful subjects in your book. Dr. Feldman, you discuss dying in character. What do you mean? Dying in character is a bit of a mantra for hospice and palliative care professionals, and it's based simply on the observation that people don't change radically when they're dying. I think very often families expect, and sometimes patients expect, to change dramatically. People who have been sort of grumpy and pessimistic their whole lives expect to somehow come to some kind of epiphany and suddenly get a lot of meaning in their life and totally change in character. That's just not true. If you're somebody who's been sort of emotional and or angry your whole life, chances are you're going to be emotional and angry at the end of life. There can be some shifts, but not a lot. And if you're somebody who has had a lot of emotional reserve, who has really been a calm and collected person, you're going to probably face the end of your life that way. Families, you know, work this way too. I talk to my families about how the end of life is a little like a magnifying glass for family dynamics. It's a family that is functioning pretty well. Everybody has some problems, but is functioning pretty well. Chances are they're going to function even better and really rally around their loved one at the end of life. If the family has some dysfunction, however, even if it's kind of gone under the surface for a little while, it's going to probably come out at the end of life. And so I often talk about this up front with my families and my patients at the end of life to give them a heads up about what to expect, because I often think if you can give them a little preview, it actually allows them to consciously adjust things to make this the best time possible and to get along with the rest of their family members the best possible. Is it fair to say that someone who's been a little more reserved and quiet throughout their life might want to die alone and wait till everybody exits and then the family feels bad because they weren't there? That's an interesting question. You know, I think, although there is no scientific evidence about people's ability to control when they die, there certainly is a lot of anecdotal reports from families and from physicians and healthcare providers saying that that just that happens, that oftentimes patients do seem to choose when they die. And very often, there are these reports that they'll wait until people are out of the room. Maybe it's to have some alone time. Maybe it's to spare their son or their daughter or their wife or their husband from the pain of actually seeing them die. Who knows what? But I often will reassure family members that don't feel bad that you weren't there. This may have been the choice of your loved one to die in this manner. Dr. Lasher, in the book you write about soft landings. What do you mean? The soft landing, the idea of the soft landing refers to the way that a pilot will bring a plane down, the wheels will touch, you roll smoothly, and everybody in the back of the plane claps. And and I contrast that 
with a jarring landing where you bang and you know the oxygen masks come down and everybody screams and you know clutches their loved ones or their purse and it's a panic there are many ways that people can pass away oncologists are very fond of saying it isn't the cancer it's the pneumonia or it's the obstruction or it's the elevated calcium level it often is the cancer uh, those other things are just manifestations of the cancer, and they're not all equivalent. There are some ways, predictable ways, that people pass away that are peaceful. And if you prevent people from passing away in that way, they may very well die another way that isn't as pleasant. And it's important to keep that in mind as a clinician. If our goal is simply prolongation of life in every scenario, we're not always doing our patients and their families a service. We may not even be doing what they want in those cases. The perfect example is somebody who has an advanced lung cancer and then develops a pneumonia. Perhaps by putting that person in the ICU on a ventilator, we can get them over that pneumonia. But what if they then went on to suffer tremendous pain from the spread of the cancer to their bones? What if they then developed a bowel obstruction? What if they were never going to leave the hospital? There are fates worse than death. A soft landing refers to a death that is smooth and peaceful, a seamless transition, if you will, to the next place. And I know sometimes we prevent that in modern medicine. Dr. Feldman, in the book, you write about awareness at the end of life. What do you mean? This is another one that I don't think we have a lot of scientific evidence about. But I think many healthcare providers believe that one of the last faculties to go is awareness, understanding of what is being said and what is happening around you. There certainly are tons of stories of people who are very near death who come back or are in a coma and wake up and can report what they have heard their loved ones say to them. And so I always encourage family members to assume that their dying loved one, even if incapacitated, can hear them and to use that time as an opportunity to speak with them, to say to them things that they have always wanted and needed to say. Actually, just the other day, I was talking to an admin assistant in my office here at Santa Clara University, and she was telling me that recently when her father died, he had been holding on and holding on and holding on and was spending most of the time asleep and eventually got to the point where they couldn't wake him up. And eventually they got the whole family together, stood around his bed, and each one of them in their own way said, it's time to go. We'll be okay without you. We're okay about you leaving. And not a half hour later, he died. And so, like I said, no scientific evidence, but there's certainly lots of stories that say that what you say to people while they're dying is very important because awareness may still be there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me are Dr. David Feldman and Dr. Andrew Lasher, authors of the new book, The End of Life Handbook, a compassionate guide to connecting with and caring for a dying loved one. Dr. Lasher, what are your thoughts about palliative sedation? Well, that's another very controversial and thankfully very rarely needed element in the medical armamentarium. For people in the listening audience who don't know, palliative sedation is the idea that people can be suffering so terribly 
from the manifestations of a disease that we literally have no choice but to sedate them. We cannot achieve good pain control at the same time as keeping them awake and alert. I probably don't encounter a need for that more than once or twice a year. In those situations, you're guided by what's called the principle of double effect. The idea is that if you are doing something for the purpose of treating a symptom, that you are not ethically, morally, or legally committing euthanasia, which you know, for all physicians in every state but Oregon, we are not permitted in any scenario to do to hasten someone's death as the first purpose of what we're doing. Now, if that is the secondary effect of good pain control or good, honest attempts to treat shortness of breath, then that's okay. If it's the secondary effect, it just can't be your primary intention. My usual thought with palliative sedation is if somebody needs that much medicine, I'm certainly on solid moral and legal ground to do it. I often do it as a trial. I will start somebody on that amount of medicine. They will not be able to respond to me. They'll be sedated. And then I may lighten it and see if they can tell me, how is that for you? Sometimes they're actually able to say, oh, God, please put me back under. And sometimes I can think of one case in particular. I had a patient say, I'd really rather be awake. They felt almost locked in, in a way, and they really didn't like where they were in that internal world. I think it's not very common. I think it's certainly the right thing to do in a very small number of circumstances. And for people that engage in my line of work or see patients like this, it's important to know that it isn't euthanasia. That's not what it is. If your first intent as a physician is to provide relief of suffering, then you can do that without fearing reprisal. Very important to know. Do you believe that palliative sedation then is part of the continuum for effective pain and symptom management? So no matter what is presented, you can manage it? Well, I think that most people do not fear death. They fear dying. They fear the symptoms that they're going to be suffering from. And I think a lot of people want to know that they are not destined to suffer incredible pain. They are not destined to gasp for air at the end of life. That's, that's a miserable thing to do, and it's a scary way to feel. It's nice for those patients to know that palliative sedation is an option, but very much like what has happened in Oregon where they have physician-assisted suicide, the number of patients availing themselves of that option has been far fewer than both sides of that argument feared. And that's because for so many people, it wasn't the ability to do it. It was having it as an option. They didn't necessarily want to end their lives prematurely. They wanted to know that they could. As it regards palliative sedation, I think a lot of people want to know that there is an option if all normal means are exhausted and they're still suffering incredible pain. If they're still in crisis, there is something we can do. I never, to a patient, say there's nothing I can do. There's always something I can do. I work very hard to avoid palliative sedation. Sometimes it's necessary. Thankfully, again, it's, it's not common. Dr. Lasher, what's your take-home message? The take-home message uh, is that this is something that all of our patients and eventually we ourselves are going to have to face. I hope that our book, The End of Life Handbook, helps guide family members to think about these things in a way that makes sense, that's simple, that avoids jargon, that allows them to understand 
our medical system, as confusing and complicated as it is, in the context of their own goals and values. I hope that doctors that are listening are encouraged to take a look at the book, recommend it to family members if they like what they read. David and I are very proud of it, and I hope that it finds a niche in helping people. It's, it's why I went into this. I know it's why Dave went into this field. I hope our book is a step in doing that. Dr. Feldman and Dr. Lasher, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your new book, The End of Life Handbook, a compassionate guide to connecting with and caring for a dying loved one. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.